Welcome to Grand Challenges from Nature. Grand Challenges is our new roundtable series in which a panel of experts take on the biggest challenges facing society and ask what scientists, universities, governments, even you and I should be doing to try and solve them. I'm Kerry Smith, and in this episode, ageing. Where better to start than one place people never get old? The beaches of Southern California. That's Venice Beach, man. I've been here for a while. That's all you see all day. You know, like, when you get here, you're not going to recognise age no more. Because you're going to see old people on skateboards. They're ready to, you know what I mean? You're going to see some stuff you've never seen because it seems like people don't get old around here. Do you think a lot about kind of, you know, being healthy as you... Support my job. Stay healthy. Yeah. Do you want to live for a really long time? Well, I want to have good quality while I'm here. Just had a physical two days ago. I want to live forever, you know what I'm saying? Who doesn't? Nobody, you know what I mean? But you want to live long and still be healthy. In this episode of Grand Challenges, we'll touch on these topics and more, because I've gathered three experts on ageing to tell me what we know about the effects of getting older on our bodies, on our minds and on our societies. With me here in Los Angeles, I have Sean Curran, molecular biologist at the University of Southern California, interested in the genetics of ageing and the genes that influence lifespan. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me. Also joining us on the line from the University of California, San Diego, Dilip Jeste, who is a psychiatrist specialising in ageing. Dilip, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on. And from the RAND Centre for the Study of Ageing in Santa Monica, which incidentally is the nearest any of us are usually to the ageless Venice Beach, we have Michael Hurd, who's the director of that centre. Hello, and thanks for uh, having me. Well, thank you all for, for joining me. We'll be picking up on some of the themes in the opening as we go through, but I thought first it might be interesting to have you each briefly define ageing. Um, I wonder if you might have different interpretations, in fact. Sean, how would you define ageing? So the obvious first component is the progression of time. Uh, and most of us understand what aging is because we can see it in the mirror every day. Uh, and that's a very external form of aging. But we know that aging occurs at all levels of the body, from your organs, from your tissues, to cells, to even the basic molecules that make up those cells. And traditionally, we think of aging as degeneration or the accumulation of damage with time. And we accumulate that damage over time, but it's also a factor of how well we, our bodies can repair those uh, types of damages as well. Dilip, from your perspective, anything to add on sort of damage over time? What Sean described very nicely is a physical aging. But there is also cognitive aging and mental or psychosocial aging. In terms of cognitive aging, there is clearly progressive worsening of the brain function to some extent after the age of 60, although it tends to be pretty mild in most people unless they go on to develop dementia. In terms of mental or psychosocial functioning, though, what is interesting is that there seems to be progressive improvement in well-being, quality of life, satisfaction with life, happiness. The level of perceived stress goes down and depression and anxiety also become somewhat less common. Michael, anything to add from your perspective? Well, they've been talking about individuals aging, and of course that's an important uh, aspect of it. Uh, we're interested in the productivity of people as they age, um, how they can care for themselves, and how they uh, fit in with society. But another aspect of this is population aging, 
that is uh, the fraction of the population that is uh, at various age bands, and that is composed of individuals aging, but also, very importantly, uh, uh, fertility, how rapidly the younger part of the population is being reproduced. Yep, well, we can already see it's quite a multifaceted problem we've got ourselves in for here. Let's start with what we do know about the biology of ageing, the basic science of ageing. And Sean, this is your ballpark. What do we know about perhaps the genes and the proteins that govern our lifespan, for example? Sure. So at least the last few decades, uh, we've identified several single gene mutations that can lead to remarkable increases in lifespan. I think it's becoming more and more complex as more and more components are discovered. Uh, But that's only one half of the coin. Uh, The environment plays an equally important role. And more importantly, it's how the environment intersects with the genetic differences between us that perhaps underlie why the rates of aging between individuals is different. Are you talking about humans when you mention there are genes for longevity? We know that is true. Uh, that's, those are some more recent discoveries. Uh, primarily the early gene, uh, or at least the genetics of aging, was done in model systems, primarily C. elegans and uh, Drosophila melanogaster. Worms and flies. Worms and flies, exactly. Uh, and so, you know, we found that single gene perturbations could lead to doublings uh, of maximal lifespan. Recently, uh, some work from a lot of individuals has looked at centenarian populations or groups of people who live to be 100 uh, and looked to see whether or not there are single nucleotide polymorphisms that might predict how long you're going to live. Uh, and remarkably, a few of those correlate perfectly uh, with the genes that were first identified in those model systems. So that's at the level of genes and cells. Um... What if we move to the level of the individual, Dilip, the level of the brain, perhaps? I mean, what happens, what what challenges does ageing present to us physiologically, uh, neuroscientifically? The brain changes, in a way, go in different directions. On the one hand, just like the body, there is some decline in the brain function and structure. With age, we lose synapses, dendritic spines, blood vessels, and some neurons also, although that is not a prominent loss. When there is dementia, of course, there is considerable loss of neurons and synapses and blood vessels. However, dementia occurs in a minority of population. So most of the people have brain functioning that declines somewhat with aging. At the same time, there are changes in the opposite direction neuroplasticity of aging. In other words, the brain continues to be moldable even in old age, although that plasticity is clearly less common or less intense than at a younger age, but which depend on the person's level of activity and environmental support. Are we, um, are we doing okay so far at using this basic knowledge to help treat conditions of aging or make ourselves live longer, the Holy Grail? Sean? So that's a really great question, and it's uh, a complicated one. I think we're just now moving towards taking what we've learned from the basic biology uh, of aging and trying to translate that into what's going to impact human aging. Uh, There's a few uh, people who've actually pioneered some of this work. So Nir Barzilai, for example, uh, has taken it upon himself to convince the FDA that uh, changing the rate of aging is something that we actually want to do. And he's uh, collected a, a large group of individuals Uh, that have uh, come up with one target that they want to look at, uh, and that's metformin. Uh, So that's looking at a drug that we know from the basic biology side impacts all the pathways that we know are important for the biology of aging, uh, and then trying to use that to prevent 
uh, all age-related diseases rather than talk, uh, tackling just one of them. Right. So getting to the root, basically. Exactly. So it's, it's uh, an old model that's out there, right, that curing any one age-related disease isn't really necessarily going to have a really large impact on how long we live or uh, how long the population lives. Uh, but if we can attack the root problem, the biology of aging itself, slow down the aging process, maybe we can attack all age-related conditions at the same time. And I'd like to ask you all, I'm going to wait a little bit later to ask you all whether you think this would be a good idea or not to just lengthen our lives, you know, willy-nilly without um, thinking properly about the consequences of that. But speaking of consequences and at the population level now, Michael Hurd, let's change tack a little. What about challenges in other domains? What about um, what does aging do to our population and our economy even? Let me start out by uh, giving a few numbers to see why uh, this is a, a grand challenge. The U.S. is actually aging, but uh, um, at a much slower rate than in uh, many other developed countries. For example, in 2010, some 13% of the U.S. population was over the age of 65. By 2050, that's going to increase to 20%, so a 7 percentage point increase. But let me point out Japan in 2010, 23% of the population over age 65. Uh, but that's projected to increase to 39% by 2050. And you think about the challenges to society of supporting that larger fraction of the population over age 65 who may or may not be able to contribute in a productive manner to the um, gross national product and uh, food supply and so on. Uh, this creates a tremendous challenge. And how much would you say your communities? join up to think about this stuff? Or is it really not necessary, Michael, to know what the causes, the biological causes of aging are to, in, to, to be able to address such a problem societally? Well, I think it is useful and important uh, to, to know about what other people are doing. Uh, let me just give a very uh, a simple example. We have limited research money. And where should we channel that? Should we put it into basic science? Should we put it into population science, behavioral science? Uh, where should that go? There's a lot of focus on pharmacological interventions to change the rate of aging, but behavioral interventions are also very important. I think that's been an advance over the past 20 years. People have begun to realize a lot of the health outcomes that we see among individuals comes from their own behaviors, their rates of smoking, uh, exercise, diet, uh, social interactions, the stress they feel in the environment, and how to allocate uh, research funds depends upon where we think the, the gains will be greatest in uh, solving our problems, and it's not necessarily into pharmacology. It's not necessarily any of our goals to uh, increase longevity per se, right? And as you heard from some of the people that you interviewed at the beach, uh, it's the quality of life that matters. Uh, and I think that's why many of these, uh, the design of many of these studies is such that we're not necessarily looking to increase maximal lifespan, but the amount of time that you spend healthy. Uh, and it's been estimated that even small reductions in the time that you're in a morbid state uh, could have uh, significant uh, implications for our economy, uh, as well as for the health of that entire population. At the same time, from one of our better surveys, uh, we see fairly clearly that health in the population age 51 to 56 has gotten worse over time. People self-rate their health as worse. They have increasing rates of diabetes, of uh, substantial overweightness. Um, it's not obvious to me that when these cohorts, the age 51 to 56 today, reach age 80 to 84, they will have the same health, uh, same good health as people who are 
currently 80 to 84. So this is a big deal. Dilip, you've done some work, haven't you, that suggests that, in fact, people, despite what might happen to their health as they get older, they, they kind of become more optimistic. Would you like to tell us about positive ageing? Yes. I mean, I see ageing not strictly as a grand challenge, but I also see it as a grand opportunity. Some people tend to look at aging as kind of a disaster, that people, the older population is increasing. And I see that as more of a golden wave of older people who can be a great resource for the society. What we have found in our studies and a number of other researchers also is that there is a difference between physical aging and mental aging, that while the physical health is declining, often there is greater satisfaction with life. Most of the mental illnesses, other than dementia, are less common in older people than in younger people. This is a positive message, isn't it, Michael? But how would you build this into the kind of model that you guys make you know, on how the economy is going to do in 30 years' time? Uh, yes, uh, I, and I agree. We ought to emphasize at the same time the positive aspect. I mean, it's great that we're now uh, living into our 80s and 90s. At the same time, we have to support an increasingly uh, large fraction of the population that may not be in, in the workforce. Uh, one perspective is that the lifetime is variable and that we will work a certain fraction of a lifetime. A rough guess to that would be you'd worked uh, around two-thirds of the years you were over age 20. So if you survived to age 80, you'd, you, then you'd kind of want to work until you're age uh, 60. We have some holdover social programs that tend to keep people in the labor force until age 62 or 65, and then uh, then encourage them to leave the labor force, namely Social Security in this country and uh, public pensions in uh, Europe and other countries. We've seen reforms to the public pension systems that have increased work life. And in the United States, indeed, uh, people are now working longer. For example, uh, the labor force participation of men aged 70 to 74 is something like 11 or 12 percent, which is really quite remarkable. But if life expectancy increases from age 83 or 84 up to age 100, then we have to increase the work life a lot more than what we've been talking about. Um, A main problem is heterogeneity. There are some people that are very fit to work into their 70s or even into their 80s, but there are a lot of other people who are not fit to work past age 62, which is the current age where people can first receive Social Security benefits. I've been doing the maths, and I I think I'm going to be working into my 80s, possibly. Michael actually brings up a really good point uh, again. A really neat theory that was brought up by uh, Hasi Cohen, the current dean uh, at the School of Gerontology at USC, is this idea of personalized aging. Uh, And it it stems from, uh, you know, a a well-known or an older idea of personalized medicine, uh, but it encompasses the entire aging as a lifelong process. So understanding both genetically uh, what we're fit to do Uh, trying to identify specific diets that would be uh, better for one individual versus another. Uh, And along with that, I think that would would come with an idea of how long that individual should work uh, in order to maintain the lifestyle he or she wants uh, up into an older age. I'd like to ask you all uh, in turn the same question now, a slightly impossible, annoying journalist question of choice. If I was to give you a large sum of money, we needn't even define what it is, but it's, it's big, and ask you what what problem you would address, what you would do with this chunk of, of money if you could, 
Um, why don't we start with you, Sean Curran? One aspect of at least the biological side of aging that has been less addressed is the ability to reverse some of the signs of aging. We spent a long time identifying genes and environmental conditions, whether they're truly the environment or if it's diet, things that can prevent or slow down the aging process. But we haven't spent as much time looking at things that can actually reverse the process once it's actually happened. Uh, and so I think uh, putting some of our efforts towards that goal uh, will yield some of the biggest results. I like that. Uh, Michael Hurd. Well, let me mention uh, two things. Uh, one is um, a follow-up to the RAND Health Experiment, which uh, happened in the late 60s and early 70s, where people were randomized into different health care plans. And that's really, the today, is the basis of our knowledge about how people respond to incentives in seeking health care. I would like to do that in the realm of uh, pensions and tax advantage saving, where we see whether or not when we give people tax advantage saving, whether it increases their overall saving or whether they just substitute tax advantage saving, which costs the government in terms of foregone tax revenues for their own private savings. So that's the first thing. This would be the RAND saving experiment, and it would cost probably $100 million. But I Cheaper presume that's, uh, that's peanuts from your perspective. That's fine, yeah. The second, the second um, entirely different, I think, an area of research where we are um, much behind, and it's an important problem, is the provision of long-term care. Firstly, how are we going to finance that? Um, we need some research to find out what instruments will uh, prompt people to save to um, finance their own uh, long-term care rather than having it financed uh, through to the tax and transfer system. Uh, secondly, the provision of informal care, which is uh, at least half the amount of care is given in the home by fam one family member to another. Uh, with the changing demographics, there will be fewer children to supply that informal care. And furthermore, uh, technology ought to be able to make that job easier. It ought to be able to make more people able to do that, and it ought to keep people in the community longer. And so I would put a lot of money into, into, those, into that aspect. Michael's a big spender. Uh, Dilip, there's still money left over, tons of money left over. What would you like to do? I would like to focus on modifying the behavior because I think we know a number of solutions, but we run into problems in actually changing the behavior. For example, we know that calorie restriction helps. Uh, we know physical activity helps, mental activity, social activity. Uh, we know stopping smoking and substance use help. And yet, we are not able to convert those into reality in a society. We need more research on developing interventions that will help people live healthy lifestyle. So we've got three very different takes there. What are the biggest blind spots that you would flag? Uh, let, let me talk a little bit about economics. We are in the United States and much of the world, in fact, in the developed uh, countries, are in the, the process of a change from what's called a defined benefit pension system to a defined contribution pension system. Defined benefit is when you work for General Motors, you retire at age 62, and they send you a check for the rest of your life. Those are disappearing, and what is in their place are defined contribution pension systems where every month some money is taken out of your check and the employer puts some in too into a capital account. You're responsible for pensioning yourself, so to speak. This is complex, and it's especially a challenge to know how to allocate and to use that money 
to protect against being, being extremely poor in advanced old age when there are so many uncertainties. And it's especially a challenge when people have to do that as their cognition declines and the finance industry doesn't yet know how to solve this problem. One of the reasons those problems exist is because there is so much ageism in the society. There is a stigma about aging is something that is probably as strong as any other stigmas embedded in our thinking right from childhood. That old age is associated with um, all bad things. Um, degeneration, deterioration, diseases, disability, dementia, depression, death, you know, all of those bad things. And so what happens is that we view this as a, said, as a disaster crisis. I also see ageism among scientists. Sometimes uh, when it comes to research funding, uh, often people say, why are we spending money on um, taking care of some disordered and older people? We should invest that in children or younger adults because they are going to live longer. And not that we shouldn't do that, but not at the cost of um, taking money away from the needs of older people. Even in the industry, the tech industry, for example, the IT folks, most of the attention is given to teenagers and young adults. But actually, older people can be great users of technology. So in general, I find that one of the big problems is our attitude towards ageing, and that needs to change. So pensions look to be a big problem. Attitudes to ageing. Sean, in your field, um, any, any blind spots, anything keeps you awake at night? I think there is. So in the past, most biologists approached aging from a reductionist approach, uh, trying to look at specific genes or specific pathways. And and that was incredibly important because we've learned a lot about the mechanisms that underlie the aging process altogether. Uh, But I think in the future, uh, we need to start looking more at integrative approaches to understanding how the aging process is regulated, or at least how the rates of aging are regulated. Uh, So taking all of those pathways that we've looked at, combining them together and looking for synergy between them, or looking at how those pathways communicate with each other, both on a cellular level, how tissues communicate with one another, uh, and how that impacts aging on the organism as a whole. Now, uh, I've got one last kind of philosophical question for you, which I believe I mentioned at at the beginning. But before I ask you that, do you guys have any questions for each other? Or are you always in room with people who think slightly differently about the same same thing? Actually, I have a question for Sean. Uh, Sean, do you think that in C. elegans, for example, you are doing and others are doing studies for extending the lifespan. In humans, we are hoping to extend the average lifespan. But do you think the maximum lifespan can be extended? Are humans, you think, are fated to live only up to age 120 or that can increase further? That's a fantastic question. So I, whenever I'm asked this question, either uh, in the classroom or, or by my colleagues, uh, it reminds me of a story that of my grandmother when I first told her that I was actually going to study longevity and, and are there ways that we can extend lifespan, uh, her, her response to me was, wouldn't that be the worst thing ever? Uh, and granted, in her later years in life, she was less mobile. Uh, she didn't remember as much. Uh, and so her idea of longevity was extending that uh, more decrepit state. So I think perhaps we've reached the limit of maximal longevity. The biggest advances that had come to increase maximal lifespan came from uh, sanitation, access to healthcare uh, and the type of medicines that we received, perhaps the, the next frontier is regeneration. That's still a little bit science fiction, I think, but it certainly has uh, some of the potential that, that could increase maximal lifespan. But again, I think the focus of most 
a biogerontologist is just like you said, to increase median or mean lifespan without necessarily an increase in maximal lifespan. Uh, there's a prominent uh, demographer who has graphed, made a graph of the maximum uh, life expectancy country by country, which has been occupied by Japan now for a number of years. And if you look at that graph, that's basically a linear graph. There's no sign that that is going to curve over. Uh, the deduction by this demographer is there's no limit. It's we're just going to keep going, and the maximum lifespan life is going to keep increasing. I'd like to ask the two of you your view of that interpretation of that graph, which I presume, at least Sean, probably you've seen, but probably both of you have seen that graph. Sure. So I think from a, a theoretical standpoint, uh, sure, that, that graph might, might be accurate. I personally don't believe it's possible to live forever, uh, or at least it's not probable. And I'm not sure that should actually be our goal. Well, I don't know about the lifespan, but I would hope that if you look at the happiness span, that I hope that keeps on increasing, especially in older age. We focus first on lifespan. Secondly, we focus on health span, but by health, we mean physical health. I think we need to focus even more so on wellness span. I agree with you, Adleep. The wellness span, uh, years of life, healthy life expectancy is extremely important. I, the science on that, at least at the population level, is not well established, I would say. There have been a recent paper that seems to suggest that is increasing in tandem with increases in life expectancy. But I th we definitely need uh, more on that. And obviously, it's extremely important. We cannot work uh, longer if we're not in, uh, able to work. Uh, let me just, um, however, mention something that I've only become aware of quite recently in the health and retirement study which is the premier population data set for studying these issues, we ask people their subjective probability of living past age 75. This subjective probability is highly uh, predictive of actual mortality. People know when, they're, uh, when their health is not so good and they're at risk of, uh, of dying. And up through 2004 or 2005, that subjective probability among people age 56 to 59 was increasing. Beginning in about 2005, uh, this is a number that's collected in the same way by the same research organization, so we were holding everything constant. That number has been decreasing. People are, have become pessimistic about living past age 75 relative to earlier cohorts. And this is in line with what I mentioned before about rising incidence of um, diabetes and obesity. That suggests to me that um, it's not definitive yet. This is just uh, people's subjective perceptions, but it is certainly different from what we've seen before, and these things are uh, uh, predictive. So that's a little bit of a pessimistic uh, tone that I think or note that uh, we, uh, we need to take a, a, a look at. Now, let me just, as we wrap up, go back to the question I asked everyone at Venice Beach and ask you guys individually, not is it desirable for us as a society necessarily to live longer, but on a personal level, you know, how long would you like to live for? <laughs> Do you want to live for as long as you possibly can? Um, Sean, why don't we start with you? So I'd like to live as long as I'm healthy and happy to do so. And I, I think that's a runaround answer to your question, uh, but I'm not going to put an actual number on it. But I, I think it, it's, it's the recurring theme that we've brought up throughout this entire uh, discussion is the, the quality of life, right? And I don't think any of us want to live in a state where our quality of life has declined. 
Uh, and so my easy answer is I want to live in that health span, in that happy, healthy, health, healthy region as long as possible. Michael? Well, let me first uh, give a serious point, make a serious point, which is everybody wants to live in a healthy state. And we're going, possibly we're going to see increasingly people living in unhealthy states if we, uh, medicine uh, conquers a lot of these things that, that kill us. Uh, society has got to come, to come to grips with the fact that people don't want to live in that state. They would rather be dead than living in those states, and we don't, we don't have the laws and ways of dealing with that issue. And so I think we need to think about that. As for myself, I think uh, that maybe I should retire and go to Venice Beach and start selling CDs. That sounds like a pretty good life. <laughs> he was having a nice time. <laughs> Dilip. The important thing is living so long as my brain and mind are active. I think in some ways, I mean, I want my body to be active and healthy too, but that's somewhat less important. Franklin Roosevelt was in a wheelchair beginning his 30s. Uh, Stephen Hawking, of course, he's an extreme example of somebody who is uh, markedly disabled and yet is contributing in a major way. And there are other examples of people who have had physical disabilities and yet continue to function and contribute to the society and they themselves are quite happy. So that's my hope, that when my brain and mind stop functioning, then probably I should die before that. Well, I mean, we may not live forever. I guess we're all accustomed to that. And we haven't solved the ageing conundrum entirely today, but I've certainly learned a lot. And I'd like to thank my three contributors, Sean Curran of the University of Southern California, Dilip Jeste of UCSD on the line, and Michael Hurd of the RAND Centre for the Study of Ageing. We'll be back soon with another grand challenge. I'm Kerry Smith, and thanks for listening.